Uh, we have a G-O-M. Good old naming. <laughs> Love a good name. True alpha in the streets, beta in the sheets. How long do a lot of us search for the anchor only to find it within ourselves? Just being able to find so much joy in Teen Wolf. Welcome to Return to Beacon Hills, a Teen Wolf rewatch podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Will Wallace, and I'm joined by... Melissa Mullis. And Kate Colvin. Every week, we'll be watching and talking about the hit MTV series one episode at a time. And this week, we're talking about Season 3, Episode 17, Silverfinger. If you're watching Teen Wolf for the first time and you're worried about spoilers, have no fear. This podcast is broken up into two sections, Alpha and Beta. The Beta section is for first-timers who are just now finding this awesome series and don't want to be spoiled about what's to come. The second section, Alpha, is where we go full spoilers and talk about not just the current episode, but the entire Teen Wolf series as well as its place in the fandom. In the show notes of your podcast app of choice, you'll find time codes for the Alpha and Beta sections. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us on Patreon at RTBH Podcast. There, our Wolfie patrons will gain access to awesome exclusives like early access to episodes, full moon AMAs, the Beacon Hills Movie Club, where we watch and provide commentary for movies starring the amazing cast of Teen Wolf and featuring the work of our talented crew, as well as guest video interviews and a monthly watch party. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash RTBH Podcast and join the pack. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. This episode is entitled Silverfinger. It was written by Moira McMahon and directed by the very talented Jennifer Lynch. In this episode, Chris, Allison, and Isaac go to a Yakuza recluse for information about the shadowy creatures that have been attacking the group. They learn that these demons, called Oni, are searching for someone who is possessed by Nogitsune, a dark Japanese fox spirit that thrives on chaos. Styles gets medical attention from Melissa, who comes to a terrible conclusion based on his symptoms, and when Scott, Kira, Derek, and the twins face off against the Oni, Raphael gets caught in the crossfire. Styles has his own run-in with the Oni, and it does not go as expected. Our favorite quote from this episode is an exchange between Kira and Scott. Kira explains, when a kitsune rubs its tails together, it can create fire or lightning. It's called foxfire. Off of Scott's reaction, she adds, I don't have any tails. Scott says, how'd you know what I was thinking? Kira says, because kitsune are also psychic. I can hear all of your thoughts. Just kidding. It's an adorable moment. It's great. And our honorable mention comes from the twins. Aiden says, this is about you being the target of demonic ninjas. Ethan says, you mean the demonic ninjas that pulled swords out of their chests and completely kicked our asses? Aiden says, yeah, those demonic ninjas. <laughs> the twins bring in some yucks. The episode opens on a flashback to when Chris Argent was 18 years old. Gerard had sent him on his first gun deal and chose not to mention that the deal was with the Yakuza testing Chris's ability to adapt and survive and reinforce his idea that his father is a total asshole. During what was supposed to be the deal, Chris witnessed the shadowy beings slaughter a group of people. When one of the beings turns its firefly-like gaze at one of the people, Chris says it was like the thing was looking into the man's soul. In this scene, young Katashi is played by Jeff's friend Nobi Nakanishi, who's back in the Teen Wolf movie as a different character. Weird. Law and Order SVU does it all the time. That's because they ran out of actors in New York. Right. 
they at least try to space it out. It's not like Ryan Murphy over there, American Horror Story, and Evan Peters is playing six different characters in one season. Evan Peters is his muse. <laughs> As Chris explains the incident, Scott realizes that the shadow creatures have only gone after supernatural so far. Back then, when night came, the creatures came from the shadows armed with swords. The man they went after back then was a Kumicho, or Yakuza boss. The Yakuza shot the creatures, but it did nothing. Ah, Team Wolf, I love you so much, but we never did the plugins from Muzzle Flash as well. Yeah, that's not something that bothers me. Me neither. I did not notice. I thought this fight scene was awesome. Same Z's. The creatures didn't mark the Kumicho like they did Isaac. Instead, they killed him, just as he shifted into something with silver fangs. Kind of amazing that MTV let y'all get away with this scene. It's so bloody. Okay, but no one's having sex, so it's fine. Exactly. Violence is totally cool. Sex, bad. Chris doesn't know what kind of creature the Kumicho was, but one of the few survivors of the massacre might know, a man named Katashi, known as Silverfinger because of a unique prosthetic. Back then, Katashi had stood up, looking like he was about to take on the shadowy beings, but before he could move, Chris shot one of them right in the mask. This didn't kill it, but the shot slowed it down long enough for the survivors to escape. Chris heard that Katashi was in the United States. Based on Chris's condition, after trying to track him down the previous day, Isaac guesses the man didn't want to be found. Chris hopes Katashi might know what the shadowy entities are and what they want. Isaac asks whether Katashi would even remember Chris. Rude. Of course he would. He's a damn gorgeous man. In one of the first drafts of the script, the scene plays out similarly, but the dialogue is a little different, and at one point Isaac says, Before they left, they turned to you, Scott, the Alpha, our leader. Oh, All hail. I just think it's cute whenever there's any Isaac wanting to talk about Scott being an Alpha moments. Yeah. Scott asks, what was behind the mask when Chris shot it? Chris says, it was absolute darkness. But, like, not in a dementory way. After the theme sequence, we see Kira returning home. She's a, just a girl in love. Oh, she be. She thinks back to moments before. Okay, but we don't need a flashback here. With a literal flash. <laughs> yeah, it happened minutes ago when he dropped her off at her house. Couldn't we have just started with him dropping her off and then shown her all lovelorn? I think so. On the back of Scott's motorcycle, Kira had asked whether all of Scott's friends were, you know, and Scott said yes. Well, Styles isn't. Or Allison. True. He probably doesn't want to bring up Allison in this moment, even if she's related to Supernatural, coming from a hunting family. Styles is just good old Styles, as far as they know, at least. Very true. Kira had asked Scott to show her his wolf face. Scott covers his face with his bike helmet and then removes it to reveal his shifted face. Look at his pointy ears. Yeah, adorbs. And it's a fun little trick to use the helmet to hide the actual transformation. Y'all were clever as f about that. We had to be. My favorite is still Derek transforming while walking behind the glass in season one's pack mentality, but this one is good too. I know it's early in the morning, but what if a jogger comes by or something? It's a residential street. Roar, I consider it still Halloween. Long night. In the present, as Scott bikes to school, he's flanked by two other motorbikes. The twins. When they reach the school parking lot, the twins explain that they're going to protect him day and night until they've solved the problem of the scary demon ninjas. Scott's bodyguards. Aww. 
because he's the hot girl. Considering that they used to be alphas, they're like total betas. They adapted. And it seemed like even as alphas, they were just followers. The dialogue is slightly different in the original script. Scott says, do you really want to protect me or do you just want to be in my pack? Aiden says, what's the difference? Scott says, there's a difference. The fact that you don't know is why you can't be in my pack. Yeah, it's a problem that you clearly don't know what loyalty actually means. Scott tells them not to eavesdrop on him using their wolf powers. They ask how Scott would know. Scott says that he's a true alpha and they have no idea what he can do. Styles takes Scott to the classroom where he discovered that the atomic numbers on the chalkboard, which led Barrow to Kira, matched his handwriting. But to Styles' dismay, the writing on the chalkboard is gone. Well, yeah. Someone wiped the chalkboard. It's a school that's in use. Right. I mean, I know Sloppy's dead and all, but it's still likely <laughs> that someone would have erased it. You've got a cell phone on you, brother. You just gotta be taking those pictures. The characters never use their cell phones correctly, despite all the Samsung ads we get. They need to get on that group chat. We've been over this, guys. Yeah, they never listen to us. Styles then goes to show Scott that the key he found in his own locker goes to the chemical storage room, but the key is mysteriously gone, even though he had it this morning. Doubting himself, Styles tries to confirm that Scott saw the key, but Scott says Styles only told him about it. Scott never actually saw the key himself. You showed it to Caitlin. Ask her. I mean, she was really drunk, but she might remember. That's true. Scott is skeptical about Styles' new theory that he's the one who let Barrow into the storage room and left him the message to go after Kira. Are you really that jealous of me being with new people, Styles? Come on, we've talked about this. You know he is. Styles presents his next piece of evidence, a news report about Barrow explaining how he made a shrapnel bomb using nuts, bolts, and screws wrapped up to look like a birthday present. The same idea that Styles happened to come up with for a coach's birthday prank. I had forgotten about this until we rewatched this episode. Me too, but it's a great detail. In the hallway, the twins ask Scott if he told Styles about the demonic ninja situation. Scott didn't because Styles has so much on his mind already. So does Scott, the twins point out if he's the next target. But Scott thinks he might not be. The twins ask, who else is there? Scott's thinking that it could just as easily be Kira, though the twins don't yet know that she's supernatural. Yeah, but Scott kind of telegraphed that Kira's supernatural in the last episode when the demon ninjas came and he looked right back at her. But did the twins notice that? Uh, maybe not. I think they're just assuming it's Scott because he's a true alpha and everyone wants his D. Who else is there in the whole world but you, Scott? It's all for you, Scott. All for you. There's actually a super different scene in the original script. When Derek tries to ask Kira who she is and what she knows, Scott comes in and asks what Derek is doing there. Derek says, we don't know anything about her and she knows a lot about us. Scott says, yeah, well, you disappear for a month and now what, you're suddenly concerned about us? Which is totally unfair, Scott. Did you even ask where he was? Also, he's always been concerned about you. Yes! Have you forgotten the previous, I don't know, like 13 days since you were bitten? And all the times he was concerned about you? So many times. Like, there's literally a sequence in season one where Scott and Styles leave Derek for dead, tell everyone that he's a serial killer, and then when Derek heals up, the first thing he does is come and save Scott from hurting Allison and Jackson yeah. during the full moon. Yeah. That's yeah. Derek. You right ask, off the bat. You ask if he forgot, but I do feel like he has like the memory of a goldfish. 
<laughs> and also there goes the theory that Scott was just trying to let him have a peaceful life somewhere else without getting drawn back into the Beacon Hills chaos. It's clearly not the case based yeah. on his attitude here. But anyway, the scene continues. Derek says, what's your plan, Scott? Do you have one? No. <laughs> <laughs> the twins rush through the door. Ian says, you think you could ditch us? Derek says, what do they want? Ethan, we're protecting Scott. Derek, that's an improvement from trying to kill him. Ethan says, we're in therapy, which is awesome because of our go to therapy, become werewolf t-shirts, guys. Yes. Totally reinforcing that shit. Even if they did it in reverse order, it's never too late. And then later in the scene, Finstock also comes in, which is interesting. He says, hey, art class is at whenever art class is. And it's clearly not now. So go to class somewhere else. As they start trickling out, he stops Derek. And he says, you play lacrosse? Derek says, I'm not even in high school. And coach says, I can work around that. That's fun. I would legit have loved to have seen that. I don't think we ever get coach and Derek interacting, do we? I don't. Not that I remember. Yeah. And I love that he's like not even faced that there's a grown man who was in there talking to high schoolers. Oh, not at all. He doesn't go there. He's just like, okay, well, like put you in pigtails and pretend you're a high schooler. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, Derek probably didn't graduate from high school so it wouldn't be the worst thing ever for Derek but I also wouldn't have been hugely shocked if coach had been like so have you met Danny (laughs) (laughs) he's young he's beautiful he's eligible so he's like we've met did you ever find a shirt that fits (laughs) Miguel right (laughs) Miguel yeah At the Argent's apartment, Chris explains to Allison and Isaac that Katashi is a paranoid recluse who won't take visitors. However, Katashi does have a soft spot for collecting antique weaponry, and Chris is in possession of a French flintlock turnover pistol from 1645. Yeah, the staff at Michael's was real confused when Chris came in and asked them to put this big old gun in a clear box for him. Eh, this is America. Their only question was probably paper or plastic. True. There was another bit in the original script that would have been super awkward for Isaac. It says, Isaac reaches out to touch the gun and Argent slaps his hand away. Argent, don't touch the merchandise. Glancing at Allison. Any of it. Ew. Yeah, I, I did not like that. Bad. Bad Chris. <laughs> if Scott is, is the next target, they might not have long to figure out how to protect him. It's interesting that everyone is assuming that being a target means you're going to die. That hasn't been the case yet with Isaac, Lydia, Derek, Aiden, or Ethan. Maybe they think they're being marked for death at a later time. Well, they don't seem to be worried about that. If they were, they'd have bodyguards on the ones who have been marked. That is true. Maybe they think they're looking for a special supernatural to kill or kidnap, and that's Scott. But it is interesting that nobody's offering any theories. I guess maybe because Styles isn't closely involved in this, and Normally, Styles is the one who's like, okay, what's going on? Where are the theories? I have five. Let's go. He is their <laughs> theoretician. <laughs> Raphael comes into his office talking on the phone with someone about soon having enough evidence to impeach Stalinsky. He ends the call abruptly when he finds that his computer security feature has been activated, snapping a picture of Scott and Kira with a laptop camera. Okay. I just love Scott's goofy-ass face in that picture. How did the picture thing happen exactly? 
It's a security thing. Yeah, that's a real thing. It happens when someone tries to put in your password and does so incorrectly. It takes a picture when the password fails as a security measure. But they didn't try to log into his computer. Yeah, we, we kind of glossed over that part. In the original script, Raphael is on the phone with a girlfriend instead of it being a work call. What? Yeah, he says... It should only be a few more weeks before I'm back. The impeachment case against the sheriff, it's going to be open and shut. Hey, when I get back to San Francisco, how about a vacation? Somewhere with no serial killers and rabid coyotes. And then when he sees the photo of Scott and Kiara, he says, babe, I got to call you back. It's funny to me, though, that he thinks, like, he still thinks the case is, like, open and shut. Against... I know. <laughs> are, you, are you serious, man? He's just real cocky for no apparent reason at all. And, like, the last case that he was on with Stalinsky was Malia's case right yeah and he was all talking shit about how Stalinsky was handling it right up until they actually reunited her with her family so to clarify there was a car accident that killed some people one of the bodies was missing and all evidence at the scene suggested the body had been taken by animals then they got new evidence which they immediately acted upon and because of that, they were able to find someone who'd been living on her own out in the middle of this wilderness by herself for eight years and reunite her with her father. And he's still out here being like, oh, it's going to be an open and shut impeachment case. Get the hell out. Go back to FBI school, sir. <laughs> exactly. And I think we talked about this before, but Stalinsky was not in office as sheriff when the hailfire happened, but he was in office when they solved it. True. Doesn't that seem pretty significant? It that should. He was able to bring back a cold case and figure it out. And the thing is, we as the audience know that there was more to it. And even without that information, he was already putting together what really happened. Styles was able to figure it out based on his father's notes, plus the extra supernatural information that Stalinsky didn't have access to. So everything really that we know about seems to indicate that he's doing a great job. And it's just so weird as the audience, not to be privy to any of the vague stuff that he's alluding to when he talks about them not doing a good job. Yeah. I really want Styles to present Raphael with a shirt that just says, bitter bitch. <laughs> Styles goes to the hospital where he explains to Melissa about the symptoms he's been having. Short blackouts, sleepwalking, which he did used to do as a kid, anxiety, panic attacks, lack of focus, and a periodic inability to read, though the latter symptom might have more to do with the human sacrifice thing. In the original script, Styles is a lot more distressed here. Uh, it says, an extremely agitated Styles pounds on the reception counter. The medical assistant's alarm is growing. He says, then where is he? She replies, your doctor is not here, Mr. Stalinsky. Styles says, well, call him or page him or text him. I don't care. Just find my doctor. Lisa puts her hands on Styles' shoulder. Styles, your primary care doctor is on a primary care vacation. Melissa nods to the medical assistant. I'll take it from here. I like him being agitated because they like talk about it, but we don't really see a lot of like the symptoms. They, I mean, obviously we get like the insomnia and stuff. They talk about him being like impulsive, which is always Styles and agitated and everything, but we don't get a ton of the agitation, but I think it's interesting that they would include it here. I do not like Styles, your primary care doctor is on a primary care vacation. That's stupid. <laughs> yeah, I didn't really understand why that was in there. Melissa asks if he's experienced irritability too. Styles says he has, possibly to the point of homicide. Which would have fit in with the scene if that hadn't been cut. I like how she just moves right past that answer, though. That very alarming answer, he says. <laughs> yeah. Finally, there's the severe insomnia, the vivid daytime dreams, 
and the difficulty distinguishing between dreams and reality. Moira McMahon, who wrote this episode, was a medical researcher on private practice, and it was she who helped us nail down what Claudia Stalinsky had. That's really oh, cool. Wow. Mm-hmm. Melissa believes that she has a diagnosis and approaches Styles with a needle, which he's uncertain about. She asks if he trusts her. Styles says he does when she's not holding a needle. Oh, uh, come on. Trust Mama McCall no matter what she has in her hand. Okay, but in the original script, Melissa straight up tricks him. Styles says, you know what this is? And she says, I do. Take these. Styles takes two small white pills from Melissa and swallows just as Melissa pushes a shot into his arm. Styles says, ow, what was that? She says, midazolam. It's a sedative. Styles says, then what were the pills? And she says, Tic Tacs to distract you from the needle. Sleep deprivation is very serious, Styles. <laughs> I do like that. That is fun. It is, yeah. In this version, her diagnosis is still severe sleep deprivation, and the needle does hold a sedative, which works right away. See how sexy that pale giraffe looks, man? You do have a type. <laughs> I do. As Styles falls asleep, he says, Thanks, Mom. Oh, Styles. My cold, dead heart just had a beat in it. Writers just wanted to destroy the audience this season. Interestingly enough, this line wasn't in the original draft of the script. Really? Yeah, that would have been terrible not to have those. It's just one of my favorite heartbreaking moments from the show. All Like, the entirety of the show. It is a good one. In the car, Chris is notified that Katashi won't do the buy in person. Considering he's a paranoid recluse, Isaac thinks he shouldn't sound so surprised. Chris says he was trying to be optimistic. But that's not who Isaac is. Nope. To get to Katashi, they'll need to go to plan B. Better hope it stays legal then. That's my post-row joke, folks. Uh, world's falling down around us, folks. But at least you've got us. After school, the twins try to continue being stuck to Scott's side, but Scott has other plans. He needs some alone time, so he and Kira took the spark plugs out of the twins' bikes. I'm a teenage boy. I need me time. Okay, but Kira's hair. So beautiful. Chris shows Allison the blueprints for Katashi's place until Isaac interrupts. Standing in a suit, he says this isn't going to work because he looks ridiculous and he isn't sure he can remember all the complicated specs about the pistol. I look like one of the con guys who dies immediately in Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Chris says that all Isaac needs to do is keep Katashi's men talking long enough for him and Allison to get to Katashi himself. Allison takes Isaac aside. Can't just tell everyone to think about you naked, Allison. She'll stop when it stops working. Indeed. <laughs> There's a funny extra bit in the original script. Argent straps on a bulletproof vest. Isaac says, why don't I get one of those? Argent replies, because you're a werewolf. Isaac says, it still hurts to get shot. <laughs> yeah, I do like that. It could have done, and not a callback, but a, a similar moment if, uh, like, to it between Derek and Peter, if Isaac's like, do you have another bulletproof vest? He's like, yep. Uh, yeah and it just closes the trunk (laughs) totally allison tells isaac that if he walks in there with confidence they'll just see a boyish looking man kind of like the one who's working on the show playing a teenager when he's in his mid to late 20s (laughs) isaac worries that they'll see a stupid teenager pretending to be a man they're going to think i'm three kids in an overcoat So Allison pulls out the big guns. She kisses Isaac and puts his hand right on her butt. Okay, this is so awkward with her dad just like a foot away. Uh, I wish we'd heard off camera just him going, ugh. (laughs) (laughs) Allison asks Isaac how he feels now. Like they're going to ask me why I'm pointing. 
Oh, my God. Oh, and... He has to have somewhere to put that ring dagger. Uh, (laughs) I knew that follow-up was coming. Uh, It's the new slappy joke, folks. Get used to it. I prefer the slappy joke. Too bad. Sure enough, Isaac strolls in with a cocky little smirk. Confident as Kincaid, one of Katashi's henchmen, has his claws out and greets Isaac. Then, we switch over to Scott and Kira, who have just arrived at Scott's house. Scott tells Kira about a security system his boss put in, but only Scott's mom can activate it. Kira's confused when she learns that Scott's boss is not a security guy, but a veterinarian? That's right, we put in a lot of angry squirrels. Like a Z-list Bond villain. Scott assures Kira that they're going to be okay, putting his hands on her shoulders. Realizing what he's doing, he lowers his hands to her butt. (laughs) (laughs) you're probably okay to touch shoulders yeah you know allison was a sexy confident one in his last relationship you're right (laughs) yeah they're too alike here they're just like each waiting for the other one to make a move true alpha in the streets beta in the sheets here worries that she's the one who's going to be targeted and she might be putting scott at risk just by being here to illustrate her point she gets out a book called japanese mythology creatures spirits and demons She asks if he's ever heard of a kitsune. No, but I don't want to say no, so I'm just going to look contemplative. I know what the answer is, but why don't you tell me so I know that you know what the answer is? (laughs) At the hospital, Melissa reviews Stiles' chart and something occurs to her. She takes his chart into the records area and compares his symptoms to the chart of Claudia Stalinsky, who died in 2004. Meanwhile, Chris and Allison sneak into Katashi's compound. Uh, the shot of Allison taking out a guard with just a couple of targeted strikes is so badass. She looks f- dope. She does. But in the original script, her and Chris are actually both attacking the guards with chokeholds. And so she wraps her forearm around a guard's neck and she says, swallow. Grabs her arms with his hands. Then she says, it's better for you if you swallow. He swallows and she executes the chokehold, putting him to sleep. Is that a thing? I do not know. I would assume yes. It's very specific. So I'm assuming yes. Isaac discusses the pistol with Kincaid, how it's a mint condition French flintlock turnover pistol gifted by Louis XIV to a prominent French family. It's only ever been fired once during a duel between brothers. Kincaid presents a suitcase with $150,000 inside. That doesn't seem like a lot for it being super special of a kind. I don't know, 150 grand for a gun? No, I agree with Calissa. In the script, Isaac has a funny line in the original scene. Isaac says, This gun was crafted in the mid-17th century. It was a gift from Louis XIV to a prominent French family. It's only been fired once during a duel between brothers on the grounds of the Palace of Versailles. Kincaid says, Fancy, who won? Isaac replies, Well, since the gun was fired only once, I'm guessing the other guy. (laughs) (laughs) I do like that, that, yeah. Pretty good logic there, Isaac. Needing to stall for time, Isaac says he'll need to count the money. Kincaid is not here for it, even though it is $150,000. He's over here like, uh, I have a massage later, let's get to it. In the original script, Kincaid says, you don't trust us? And Isaac responds, I'm in the middle of a heavily armed compound selling a stolen heirloom to a reclusive lunatic. So no, I don't trust you. <laughs> I can only assume that would have made Kincaid even saltier. <laughs> yes. Yes. Kira shows Scott a part of the book that contains an illustration of a kitsune, or Japanese fox spirit, surrounded by electricity without being harmed by it. Scott says, it looks like what happened to her at the power station. I love how it's a kid's book. That's so cute. 
Is that a real book or is that one you guys had made up for the show? I believe we had it made for the show. Oh man, I won one. It's so cute. You were really into the Fox abs, weren't you? No. Fox abs. No, I wasn't. I don't swing that way. Giraffe abs only, folks. <laughs> you know, I'm into the giraffe neck, not the abs. Don't be a weirdo. Moving on. Here explains that when a kid's day rubs its tails together, it can create fire or lightning called Foxfire. If there had been a Kira spinoff, that's what the title would have been. Oh, that's super cool. Sorry. Were there already any story ideas? There were not. Oh. <laughs> Unfortunately, no. When we were breaking all of this, Jeff was like, oh my God, if, if we do like a Kira spinoff, it'll be called Foxfire. And okay, I guess maybe there were ideas, but it was, it was kind of going to be like the old Incredible Hulk show where he kind of goes from town to town helping with people's problems and stuff like that. And she would have used her kids and powers to deal with it. It's interesting. Yeah. Also, when the fox face made of light was surrounding her and illuminated, I wish we could have seen the tails. It's so specific to the Kitsune myth, and I think that would have been really cool. Yeah, and there was another thing in the Kitsune mythology that we considered using and didn't ultimately. Kitsune often have these white balls called star balls that they carry around even in their human form. So originally, we were going to have Kira always bouncing a ball, but we could never really get it to work into the story, so we cut it. I think it would have been kind of cool to do the ball thing, but never address it. Then you wouldn't necessarily have to work it into the story. It could just be a little quirk of hers that makes more sense for fans who know about Kitsune lore, like an Easter egg. Yeah, that would have been really good. Kira quickly specifies that she doesn't actually have tails. Scott asks how she knew what he was thinking. Because Kitsune are psychic, she explains. I love how paranoid he immediately gets about this. He's like, shit, shit, shit. What do I think of? Don't think about it naked. Don't think about it naked. <laughs> Don't think about Isaac naked. <laughs> don't think about Allison naked. Oh my God, don't think about anyone naked. She keeps telling me to think about her naked. Then Kira admits she's kidding. She can't read his thoughts. That is a top shelf mini prank on her part. It was really good. Since Kira was supposed to be home before dinner, Scott suggests she tell her parents she'll be out during dinner, maybe on a date with Scott. She asks if that's a good idea since foxes and wolves don't get along. Scott says, that's just a drawing in a children's book. They turn one more page before closing the book. In the original script, they throw the book down. It falls onto a page that reveals a picture of a black swirling ante, a spirit of death and destruction, and dead bodies lay in its wake. And Styles, for some reason, has a portrait of that thing on his wall. Yes. <laughs> that would have been great had that been thought of all the way at the beginning of the season. That would have been cool. Scott and Kira nearly kiss, but then Scott hears the door downstairs and assumes it's his mom. When they get downstairs, they realize it's actually Raphael, because somehow Scott still doesn't know how to use his werewolf powers. Raphael can't just keep coming in all the time. That's like hella rude of him. Understand what divorce is, sir. Mm-hmm. Scott asks Raphael why he still has a key. Instead of answering the question, Raphael says it's funny he mentions keys because he wants to know how Scott and Kira got a key to his office. He shows them the picture taken on his laptop. While Isaac continues to stall by counting the money with a money counter, Kincaid says he must not know the full story behind the pistol. The duel between brothers was a cover story. In reality, one of the men encountered a vicious animal in the woods, and the creature's bite transformed him into a monster. By his family's code, the brother killed him with this pistol. 
Sensing the change in tone, Isaac says he'll trust them about the money, but Kincaid insists he wants to hear the version of the story that Isaac knows. He grabs Isaac, causing Isaac to wolf out in self-defense. In the original script, Kincaid shoves his claws into Isaac's hands, pinning him to the table. Isaac screams in pain, and his eyes glow. Kincaid's eyes glow blue, and Kincaid yells, Where are the Argents? That's weird. My acting? Yes. No! <laughs> I, no, I concur. That he's asking where the Argents are, because the whole thing is that Chris was trying to get in to see Katashi, and it didn't work because... Katashi had too much security, right? He's a recluse. He doesn't want to see anyone. And Chris got his ass kicked, mm -hmm. which makes it seem like they didn't know that it was Chris who was trying to get in. I think they did know. I think they knew it was Chris. And that's yeah. why he couldn't go in in the suit. If they didn't know him, he could have just gone in. I mean, that they didn't know who he was. Like, they would know what oh. he looked like. You know what I mean? I don't think his name's enough. That's why he had to bring the mask this time to be like, he might not remember me, but he'll remember this. I don't know why he didn't do that the first time around, but it seems like his name, like he might have thrown out the name the first time and they were like, we don't know you. Go away. But then he says, where are the Argents? Well, I assume that because they gave the name, they're like, this, you're hella suspicious. It must be that guy who tried to break in last night. Yeah, I think he, he understands that this is a diversion. But it's Argents plural. Well, because... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I don't, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. Like it, 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 it sort of feels like a "Did you read the script?" moment to me. Yeah. Watching this situation unfold via camera feed is Katashi. Hey, it's Kerry Tagawa. He starred in Mortal Kombat alongside the one and only Lyndon Ashby. He was Shang Tsung. That's so freaking cool. For some reason, in the original script, Katashi was wearing a bathrobe. I guess I think they really wanted to go hard on he cray cray. He's in recluse cash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Katashi watches the altercation until Chris comes in, gun drawn, saying he only wants to talk. When Katashi says taking out his security isn't a good way to start a conversation, Chris intuits that Katashi might not remember him. Katashi doesn't lower his own gun, so Allison does so for him. Kick-ass move. Kincaid joins the trio, claws at Isaac's throat. His claws don't look as good as the others. They look like they're about to pop off. I thought the same thing. Scott tries to get Raphael to leave for his own safety, but Raphael isn't leaving without an explanation. We were just looking up porn, Dad. Jeez, my laptop was dead. I think they should go with the nude story. I doubt the police are going to push that hard against teenage girl didn't want grown-ass men looking at naked pictures of her. I feel like they'd get pretty say no more about it. Sure, they'd have to come up with an explanation for how they got in, of course, but they could bullshit that. They just need to give a reasonable-ish explanation. Well, in the original script, Kira does pull out that excuse. Kira says, it was me. I was deleting pictures. Scott and McCall turn to Kira. McCall says, pictures? Kira replies, on my phone, which you confiscated. McCall asks, pictures of what? Kira says, pictures of me that I took myself in front of the mirror. Okay, McCall replies. Kira continues wearing not a lot of clothing. McCall shifts very out of his league. He then says, ah, oh, right. Scott gives Kira a small smile, impressed by Kira's quick thinking. Scott puts out his hand for the keys, but McCall clutches them tight. He says, there's one more thing I need to know. Did A. Stalinsky help you get into my office? Father or son? <laughs> 
yeah I think it would have made perfect sense for Kira to try that and then they could have just been like no if Stalinsky had we would have probably known that there was a security measure like that yeah but I guess if he wonders if it could be Styles too, Styles might not necessarily know that that's true. Scott tells him to get a warrant, which I love. I kind of just think of Lucille Blues. Yes, I was that line. hearing that in my head <laughs> as you said that. Raphael says he doesn't need one. He's Scott's father. Scott corrects him. Raphael isn't a father, he says. Just a gene donor. I like to call those sperm donors. I guess he weren't so sure about using the word sperm. I wouldn't want to use it when speaking to my father, so... In the original script, uh, this actually plays out a little differently. It comes before Kira gives her explanation about the photos. McCall says, if you weren't my son, you'd already be in jail. And Scott says, it would be the first time you picked work over your family. McCall says, is that why you think I left? Scott says, I don't care why you left, but right now I'm leaving. We're leaving. Huh, that's interesting. Actually, the entire thing was supposed to unfold at the loft. Like really? they up, yeah, they they get end up getting trapped at Scott's house, the same as what we see on screen. But the original plan was to go to Derek's loft again, and he was supposed to meet the twins and Derek there, and he was going to bring Kira with, with him for safekeeping. Melissa returns and asks what's going on, but before they can give an explanation, the sun finishes setting and night has fallen. That means the shadowy figures are coming, and it happens even faster than they thought it would. Before Scott knows it, one of the creatures has entered the house and run Raphael through with its sword. Uh-huh. I mean, if it had to be somebody. From the original script, Melissa says, what's going on, Raphael? He replies, it's between me and Scott. Scott says, I broke into his office. McCall says, with his girlfriend. Melissa, girlfriend? Turning to Kira, I'm Scott's mother, Melissa. Kira says, nice to meet you, but we're just friends. Scott sees the last of the setting sun. He turns to his mother, serious, staring her straight in the eye. Scott says, she's new in town. We have a lot in common and we have to go right now. Melissa says, okay, a lot? Scott says, a lot. Understanding what he's saying, Melissa says, then you need to go right now. I like that bit where he's just like doing code like mom. We have a lot in common. Yeah, yeah I, I really like that like too. That. I really like that. Yeah, that's really cool. Melissa drags Raphael out of the fray just as Derek slides in to join it. Derek with the entrance! I am always amazed that no matter how f***ed up things get, Derek is always there when Scott really needs him. He's a true friend and ally. The twins come sailing in through the windows, shattering the windows in the process. Okay, but I'm pretty sure the door was open, guys. Not dramatic enough. Meanwhile, Derek's like, I love a strong entrance, but I'm not here for getting glass out of my hair all week. It is great hair. In the original script, after they fight the Oni, they have this exchange. Ethan says, this was a lot easier when we were double the size. Aiden says, yeah, I miss that. (laughs) That was kind of fun. It was fun. I also appreciate the going back to Derek's entrance. He knows Melissa's a single mom. She doesn't have that money to go replace those windows, twins. Think ahead. Think of other people. Definitely. Derek is respectful. He's like now assessing the situation. Can I come into this fight looking cool, being helpful, and also not with this nice environment, which the nice single mom has created? Yes. Must respect (laughs) the perfect Melissa McCall. Okay. (laughs) For some reason, it just popped in my head that I feel like Derek should have tried dating Melissa and then becoming Scott's stepdad. <laughs> oh my god. 
<laughs> like now you have to respect me, Scott. He's going around saying, You're not my real dad. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. As soon as the werewolves are able to force the creatures out of the house, Scott signals for Melissa to throw a vial of mountain ash at the doorway, forming a line in the threshold and completing a mountain ash circle that includes the rest of the house. Now we're all stuck in here. Real world. Supernatural edition. Kira realizes she can't cross the barrier either. Aiden notices this. It's like a supernatural bug zapper. And Teen Wolf certainly has its fair share of supernatural bugs. Tashi tells Chris and Allison about the shadowy figures. They're called Oni, and they're unstoppable demons. Katashi's a lot more unstable in the original script. When they first enter, he starts mumbling, strangers, strangers, strangers. Then, after Chris produces the mask to show him, Katashi says, they're after someone you know, aren't they? Katashi looks at Argent, a terrified glee on his face. Allison says, our friends. Katashi says, then I'm sorry for you. I'm not sure I know what terrified glee is. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Scott finds out that Derek joined the fight because he's been following Scott all day. Derek seems surprised that Scott didn't realize it. Aww. Didn't you see me just lurking in the background with my hands in my pockets? Staring? You thought that was that cardboard cutout that <laughs> around town. The one named Suddenly Derek. Yep. Suddenly Derek. Melissa calls for Scott's help with Raphael. This is a fun transition, with Scott turning into the hallway and then the fade into Raphael's face. Should we just let him die? With the way Raphael's arm is rotated, Melissa thinks a tendon might be torn, which could lead to a collapsed lung. He might not make it to sunrise. Oh well. And nothing of value was lost. In the original script, Scott takes his father's pain while his dad is unconscious. Or he could just poke the wound. Sorry. <laughs> I feel like if you're unconscious, you're not feeling pain. Right? That's like a whole tree falls in the woods conundrum. As a medical doctor, isn't, <laughs> isn't pain just your brain making sure you understand something is wrong? That's why I compared it to a tree falling in the woods, because the question is basically, is sound still sound if it's just a wave oh, I see that saying. nobody's oh, yeah. brain interprets as sound? Right, gotcha. I think it also is kind of those things where he's like out of it, but still making like sounds of Baby like noises. distress. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what? They need to get him to the hospital, Melissa says, but they're also worried that calling for help with those creatures outside could lead to more people getting hurt, especially since Scott doesn't think guns work on them. I'm surprised he's not trying to call Allison, Isaac, or Chris for an update. Elsewhere, Katashi explains that nothing works on the Oni, or at least no man-made weapons. You don't fight a force of nature, you endure it. One of them has already done so. Katashi points out the mark behind Isaac's ear left by the Oni. It's the Japanese kanji for self. The mark means the Oni have confirmed Isaac is still himself, a regular sassy bitch who likes scarves. The Oni are looking for one who is not themselves anymore because they've been possessed by a dark spirit. At the big house, Aiden asks Kira what she is. When she doesn't answer, he shows Ethan that she's supernatural by grabbing her hand and pushing it against the mountain ash barrier. Don't lay hands on people, rude ass. I agree, but in the original script, Derek was actually the rude ass. Derek says, it went after you. Why? You're not a werewolf or a banshee. Kira says, I don't know. Derek says, I think you do. Derek suddenly grabs Kira, forcing her hand to the open window. The mountain ash barrier ripples in response, forcing Kira's eyes to glow orange. Her pupils dilate into vertical aligns. Box eyes. I like it better that it's not Derek. I feel like he is 
past this point where mm-hmm. he was doing things like that. Yeah. I agree. But I like the idea of seeing fox eyes on her, like not just glowy ones, but like they change into yeah. like fox shape. That would have been cool. Yeah. Derek saves Kira a response by coming in and telling Aiden she's a Kitsune idiot. If Aiden had used his wolf eyes to see her, then he would have seen the fox aura around her. Young Kitsune have it because they don't know how to hide it yet. Kira probably doesn't know what kind she is yet either. At the same time, Katashi is in the middle of explaining Kitsune to Allison, Chris, and Isaac. There are 13 kinds of Kitsune, including Celestial, Wild, Ocean, and Thunder. One kind is Dark and is called Void, or Nogitsune. To see an ocean kitsune. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Would they call it an Oshitsune? <laughs> right there, fun. just right out of my brain. I like that. <laughs> That's good. Good job, me. This is what the Kamicho was from Chris's story that took place 28 years ago. He was possessed by a Nagitsune, feeding off pain, tragedy, strife, and chaos, which helped him rise through the ranks of the Yakuza. Kira fears that she could be the Nagitsune, but Scott is certain she isn't. What he saw around her didn't look evil. It was so pretty. Pretty things can't be evil. That's a fact, Wolfies. Kira points out that Kitsune are trickster spirits, so it could be a trick. Meanwhile, Aiden insists to Derek that he wasn't going to hurt Kira. Derek is unimpressed by this clay. Aiden goes on to say that he and Ethan are only here to help Scott. Derek asks if they'd be willing to die for him. Because I am and I have many, many times, even after he accused me of murder. I still roll in and save his ass all the time. So what Derek and Styles also really have in common. They're like both head of the Scott McCall fan club. <laughs> yes. That is accurate. Katashi explains why he has the silver finger. There's a ritual called Yubitsume, which involves removing the joints of the little finger because this weakens your grip on a sword. When a katana is gripped properly, the little finger is the strongest. Katashi performed it on himself as a penance for a mistake. And that wasn't his only mistake. Though Chris had thought Katashi was getting ready to attack the Oni, he had actually been planning to run the hell out of there. Chris's shot at the Oni saved Katashi from looking like a coward in front of the surviving Yakuza which could have cost him his head. Given that he owes Chris his life and his honor, he'd love to give Chris the answer he needs. But all he can tell them is that if there is a Nogitsune among them, they should let the Oni kill it, even if it's Chris's own daughter. Awkward. I really wanted a reaction from Allison there. Yeah, it seems out of character that she would say nothing to that. Maybe she's on her phone. I wasn't listening. What did he say, Dad? (laughs) None of this stuff with Katashi owing Chris was in the original script. There was this additional exchange, however. Katashi says, You can leave now and take that toy gun with you. I realized it was phony the moment the boy walked in. Isaac turns to Arjun as they get up. Isaac says, You send me in here with a fake? As they join Allison at the door, Katashi turns to them with a weak smile. Katashi says, I'd wish you a safe trip home, but if there's a Nogitsune in your town... You're all as good as dead. Fun voyage. (laughs) (laughs) Back at the McCall house, the Oni use their swords to create a hole in the mountain ash barrier. Don't cross the streams. In the original script, the Oni keeps circling the house. Ethan says they're going in circles. 
Derek says, tigers will chase men into trees and then wait for hours, sometimes even days, starving them out until they're too weak to hold on to the branches. Ethan says, I don't like that story. <laughs> then when the Oni do break through, Derek says, I think they just figured out how to climb the tree. I think that's kind of fun. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen that or heard that from Derek. Yeah. <laughs> also, like, Ethan's just, I don't like this story. <laughs> I don't like this story, Derek. Yes. <laughs> You're terrible at bedtime stories, Derek. Yes. I regret that you told it. <laughs> Raphael tells Melissa that he needs to talk to Scott. She knows why he really came back. Melissa says he's in no state to do so, which means he'll have to stay awake and have that conversation with Scott later. Allison calls Scott and explains the information that Katashi gave them. She says the Oni won't hurt them once they've confirmed they're not Nigitsune. As the Oni force themselves through the weakened mountain ash barrier, Scott tells the others not to do anything. He takes Kira's hand and asks her to trust him. I can show you the world. <laughs> Holding hands, they accept the Oni, checking and marking them. I love the Oni's synchronized head tilt when they're checking Scott and Kira. In the wee hours of the morning, Styles wakes up from his drug-induced sleep. At the same time, Melissa brings Raphael to the hospital and explains his injuries and vitals as he's wheeled away. And he's kind of a dick, so, you know, do your job, but you don't have to be really good at it. Don't stress yourself out over it. Yeah, don't use the good meds. Just a callback to that moment with Derek and Peter, except it's Raphael being like, don't you guys have anesthetic? And they're like, yep. <laughs> so in the original script, Melissa gives the doctor info by saying he had a SW to the right chest. She then has to clarify to the doctor that SW means sword wound. Is that something they actually have shorthand? I don't think they do. That's like, I feel like the joke because, you know, they'll say GW. Like, I'm sure you've heard that on different medical shows of gunshot wound. Very common say. diagnosis in but, America. Yeah. Yes, unfortunately. But yeah, I think she's just like, SW. I'm like, wait, what? Because <laughs> it's not common shorthand. Okay. Yeah. Nurse, you better write that down because it's going to get common soon. <laughs> <laughs> There's just like this whole like cheat sheet of like, new acronyms they've had to come up with for shorthand for Beacon Hills in particular because there's all sorts of weird ass shit that happens. Yeah. WB yeah. wolf bite. I, I, I was gonna say like <laughs> somebody goes to a new hospital and they're like how frequent are AMs here? And they're like what are AMs? And they're like oh sorry animal maimings? That's something we have really frequently in Beacon Hills. Is that is that not true here? Uh, we have a GOM. Good old maiming. Love <laughs> <laughs> a good name. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> That's funny. Elsewhere in the hospital, Styles runs to the Oni. One of them reaches out to check Styles, but before it can, Styles' hand shoots up and grabs the Oni's hand, almost as if it moved on its own. Something dark comes over Styles. Uh oh. Styles shoves his fist right into the Oni's chest, pulling out a firefly. The Oni dissipates like black smoke. The other two Oni back away slowly. They're like, oh, no, we f***ed up. Styles and the Oni stare at each other for a moment before the Oni swarm Styles. Oh, man, he looks really hot when he's evil. Evil giraffe. Scott finds Styles standing perfectly still, facing away from him. He asks if Styles is okay, and when Styles turns around to face him, he seems to be. He seems like he's Styles again. In a normal tone of voice, Styles tells Scott that he's fine and asks for an update. They walk away leaving a firefly on the hospital floor that soon crumbles into black smoke. The episode ends there. 
All right, Wolvies, that wraps up the beta section for Silverfinger. And now we're about to dive into spoilers, not just for this episode, but for the whole Teen Wolf series. If you want to stay spoiler-free for all the excellent stories to come, jump out now and we'll catch you next week. But if this isn't your first time in Beacon Hills and you want to hear more, don't move a muscle. Here comes the alpha. Can you tell us how Teen Wolf came into your life? Well, that is such a good question. Um, I definitely heard about it before I was up for the show. I had a good friend in Chicago who loved it. And I do feel like I saw a couple episodes of season one in there somewhere. And mm-hmm. um, and then also my hairdresser really loved the show too. <laughs> so I got, I got it like from two different angles. And then the way I got on the show was that my agent's assistant, I'm pretty sure that he knew Jeff personally somehow. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, we have a sample you should read and he read it and it had elements that are, you know, had that little Venn diagram, like Mm -hmm. some themes and stuff. And it had like a teenage boy who was between two worlds. That was sort of the beginning. And then of course the interview process and all that good stuff. And then just, I don't know, luck being whatever you want to call it, just got it. It was very fortunate to get the job. What was it like coming up with the story for your episode, Silverfinger? We used this computer program that would just have this huge map of all these different story points. So that Mm -hmm. was a great way for the whole season to be pulled together because anyone, of course, watches the show, you have all these threads and then at the finish line, they all come together and weave into like, you know, the big explosion of all the villains and all the wolves and all the packs and all the alphas and everything. Oh, yeah we had all these elements and then things had to start getting planted so that they would then fold into the second half of the group. This is getting very like technical. No, it's great. We're really interested in that kind of stuff. Great. 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 So it's, it's a puzzle. I'll say that it's a puzzle. So at the, at the beginning of a writer's room, it's kind of the most fun because you don't know what the rules are. You're all just dreaming really big and you're really excited and you kind of are excited about it all. And then as you start going, you realize like, I had this puzzle piece, we want it, but it doesn't fit. Or this one only fits at the end, but maybe it's not part of the season. Maybe it's something for another season or, and then there's logistical challenges in terms of location and actors. So all these puzzle pieces come together and then you start, it's almost like a loaf of bread, like who gets what slice starts to, starts to come out. And I remember I was very grateful to have an episode before everyone just started fighting a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like, um, I don't know how much like big time action I could write. So I was like very happy that there's a big fight at the very end and there's some good medical injuries because that was something I enjoy writing. So um, and definitely some romantic looks and dreams and things. So that was um, it was really fun because it ended up playing into more of my strengths as a writer. So I was very grateful for that. And I just remember there was like these three threads we had to keep coming back to, which was this gun and the Yakuza and where that was going. And then we had Kira, her big reveal of what she is and what her powers are. And then, you know, we had like these ninjas from the dark coming and getting closer and nobody knew what they were. And there was a tattoo and what does that mean? So there was, there was lots of pieces. And um, again, just a huge credit to our director, to Jeff, to the actors that If you look at some of these lines, you know, they do move the plot forward, but the actors just 
infuse it with so much tension that it almost feels like they're character building lines. But when you look at them, every single line keeps moving that story forward. And that's why so much story happens in Teen Wolf. There's nothing wasted. By the time you get to the finish line, it is just like super streamlined. So um, I really felt that in season three, especially. It's such a strong season. Yeah, it, yes, it is. it's our collective favorite season of the show. Yep. It is just so interesting and so intricately constructed, like you said. I could not agree more. I, you know, I love duality. I love the idea of the real, the unreal, two sides of people, unconscious, subconscious, and having styles split. It's like everything in the show is about that. And then we had a character that became that, you know, it's just that theme hitting over and over and over and over and over again. I mean, it's kind of the setup of the show. You know, you're a teenager and, you know, you're a werewolf together. And how right. does that, how do you navigate those two worlds? That's what really attracted me to the show overall. I love, I love those kind of themes. I was just going to say that's kind of the teenage experience, right? You're in this place between childhood and adulthood and you're trying to figure out how to navigate that and how much you're ready for and how much is going to hit you regardless of whether you're ready for it. Yeah, I really think this season in 3b the show grew up a lot yeah mm -hmm. it Definitely. got a lot darker and more serious and dealt with more grounded heavy themes like the illness that styles has that it, it feels mm -hmm. so much more present in the real world i mean none of us really worries about becoming a werewolf right but many of us worry about inheriting illnesses or getting sick while we're young and not having as much time as we think we're going to have. So yeah I, yeah, I really felt like this season hits home a lot. Yeah. So you mentioned that one of your sort of strengths as a writer or areas of expertise is medical stuff, medical injuries and that sort of thing. I know that you worked as a medical researcher on private practice. How did you get into that area? I grew up like around just a lot of doctors and medical talk. And I like helped out at a medical office when I was in actually junior high. Like I was like a file. I had these like fi little filing jobs. Okay. And I just, you know, I would read all the files. I mean, not supposed to, but like <laughs> the paper. This, this is before every, you know, everything got digitized once Obama um, said, absolutely guys, we're done with the paper, which was the right. <laughs> but before that medical offices used to just be like huge paper dumps and insurance companies needed all paper so you, you know i would look and i would just see i would just see a headline and then i had to file it by name so you know i knew the alphabet like it was unreal how good i was at filing and i just you know they're just just thinking of every person has a story like every medical diagnosis is a story and how they find out and what was the first clue and i mean i love clues and mysteries so it was like the first time this happened or that happened and then they get a diagnosis and then they look back and say well, you know that is interesting i fell over over here and I didn't ever thought it was anything but maybe that was the beginning and you know there's there's a lot of just storytelling I think good doctors are storytellers I'll say that but anyway so beyond that just as myself I took six years of Latin in um, <laughs> middle school and high school and that obviously is not that common thing to say and so I wrote out of film school, I wrote a spec of House which was one of the number one or number two shows on television at that time and that episode got a lot of attention. And so, so my managers had heard that, and I, I will say this, because I know there's going to be a question later about like writers getting in. 
I remember that I had also written like an, a little independent film that was, you know, just, just really tiny, set in Chicago. I wrote it for a director, blah, blah, blah. So my managers were like, well, we want to get you, you know, this big thing or that big thing. And I was like, just get me anywhere on a TV show. Like, I, I don't care. Like just anything I will assist, you know, the guy who's painting the props, like just get me closer. And then I'll just try to navigate from there. Like just, you know, learn and listen and whatever. So I told my managers to like drop it down a little bit <laughs> because they were, you know, I just didn't think I, not so much I was ready. Everyone feels ready for everything in their 20. You know, they're like, I'm ready, but you just, you want to get in wherever you can. So I was like, you know, just whatever you hear, tell me about it. Don't think that I wouldn't go for that. So they heard that Grey's Anatomy was going to double their research department if private practice got picked up as a show. So private practice was like a backdoor pilot out of Grey's. And if it got big enough ratings, which I mean, Grey's was like a juggernaut, it still is, that it would then be greenlit and, and they would need, you know, to, so the, so the first year I was there, I mean, it's getting convoluted, but the, I had an, I had an interview, the green light came for private practice and then I was hired. And then when I got there, they had both of us. So it was like a director of medical research and then me and like, we would switch. So I would go to private practice room. She'd go to Grey's Anatomy. Then we would switch. So I was in both rooms throughout. That's cool. I don't even know how my brain like gets up with it all. But part of the reason is that you didn't want the shows to have the same medical case. So it was really oh. important that somebody was listening to everything. So they could say, well, they're kind of doing something similar on private in three episodes. Are we sure we want to, you know, do this in, over at Gray's? And so there was a lot of conversations about that. But the really the most exciting part of the job was that I constantly talked to doctors to get more stories. And mm-hmm. so they would tell me something and then I would try to find the five beats that we actually needed. So it was like, come in with the emergency, figure out what it really is. Everything flips on its head. It's actually something else or, you know, it's, it's genetic. So they have to find their twin or, you know what I mean? There's always (laughs) like something that then has to open up the story to involve more of the doctors, more of the specialties. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And then I would go to the writers and pitch it to them and be like, how about a story where blah, 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 blah. And then you can bring in this and this doctor can work on it. Now you have a scene with two doctors that we've never seen work together before, you know, trying to find all these ways. And that I think was really, even though I love my freelance at private practice, that story muscle, it just, it like rubber hits the road, you know, it's like on the deadline, got to figure it out, find the puzzle, find the pieces, weave it in, and then convince someone else that it's as good as you think it is. And I feel as though that's really good training for the room because you have to listen and talk and think. <laughs> and that's a lot for writers who like to, you know, be alone and <laughs> oh, yeah. out their stories all by themselves. So it's a lot of a lot of skills that a lot of writers are not so comfortable with. So I I, I credit that job with really teaching me a lot. I had to go to production meetings, I had to write pronunciation guides, which was part of the Latin thing. When I came in and said I had taken Latin. It was like, oh my God, somebody who can speak medical language because it's all from Latin roots. So then I was, you know, telling the actors, I had these little guides and then sometimes I go on set and pronounce the word and, you know, there was a nurse there too. So if she was, you know, if she was somewhere else, I'd be able to go down and feel excited and talk to an actor and tell them how to say a word. And it was wonderful. It was terrific. I, I feel like I know every inch of the Grey's Anatomy and private practice set, even, <laughs> even though they're different now. I know the shows are like, one show's over there and Grey's is, you know, not change locations, but they took over a bigger part of the studio. And 
but I, I feel I feel like they were places you know that I lived for a while you live in the you live in the show that you're you're a part of yeah it's so absolutely yeah but it's so interesting that there are just dedicated people who are looking up injuries and diseases and, and then oh, yeah. pitching to be like hey what about this specific thing for the story I just I I guess I naturally assumed you know that it's like how we did on Teen Wolf, where it's like, hey, let's do something interesting. Someone needs to Google that right now. It's, <laughs> it, it's just whoever is free at the moment. All right, you go Google for 10 minutes and let's, we need to figure out if this is something we can actually do. But yeah, ahead. well, I mean, I, part of that is just the volume because, you know, a writer, especially some writers, would have a very personal history in their family or a good mm -hmm. friend had something. So they come and say, I really want to put this episode. It's like, awesome. Except we also need like two more cases. Like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. one, and then we needed other ones and smaller ones and funny ones and ones that had ethical moral dilemmas. So, you know, even the, the writers do get quite a library of medical understanding, but in the end, you need someone to get on the phone and be like, okay, what, what shot do they get when they come in the ER? You know, and they slant, how much time do they have before it all goes south? You know, like you, have, <laughs> you need all those details. And when you pick the right thing, which, you know, by the time you get to the close to the finish line, you're pretty sure you have all these fantastic natural ticking clocks start to come in because you want, and you can feel it in Teen Wolf too. You want those ticking clocks. You've got oh, to yeah. figure this out before the thing happens. And I, yeah. it's, um, it's when you have, when you have shows that have a ticking clock built in, you're like halfway there. It's like, great, great. You, you, now, now you're going, you're always going to have that tension. Oh Yeah. Definitely. You mentioned a feature you wrote, but I know you have worked in features. How would you compare working in TV to features? Well, I want to say this is my favorite question. <laughs> okay, um, excellent. I love talking about writing process. So in features, usually a main character, most in most, most movies, not all, but there's a main character and they have one status quo when we meet them. And that status quo inherently has a problem because something in that status quo isn't going to hold. Whether or not the character knows that or not, the audience knows. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, you see the problem, right? Then the character has to go on a huge journey that they might not even realize what they're really looking for until the midpoint, but they're trying to get something, they want something, and it's going to motivate them to go somewhere and meet somebody and do something or you know, train for the Olympics or whatever, right? It's going <laughs> to motivate them to do things that they're uncomfortable with because their status quo is not okay, mm -hmm. right? So they got to like go against that. Then it all, you know, fails and then they have a moment of truth and then they try something new and then there's a twist and then they end up in a new status quo. It might be exactly what they wanted or it might look, usually it looks what they wanted, but it comes differently than they thought you know? Mm -hmm. And that's why that last image of a movie, you're like, okay, all right. Like they got the bronze medal. I don't know, but it's like, you know, they, they, they did the thing they wanted to do, but maybe not the way they thought they would or, you know, whatever. But this final shot is like, ah, you know, um, their needs are met. They either got what they wanted or they didn't, but they're in this new status quo. All right. And then in television, in features, you tell a story that brings you into a world. In television, you present a world and then you pull the story from that world. That's why you can do season after season after season after season. So you want to find a world that is vast and complex and has this never-ending matrix of combinations of things to explore. So in a television show, you're in a world and now you tell stories in that world. 
And the characters increase their knowledge of that world as they continue through episode after episode, but they grow more like the human experience, which is more incrementally. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they learn something, you know, they have their first girlfriend, they do things different with the second girlfriend, or they're going to do it different this time on the lacrosse team, you know, whatever it is, <laughs> they try something and then they, and then they learn and do something different but they're not necessarily, you know, clowning Mount Everest. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. it's, more, it's more gradual, um, especially like in sitcoms, you don't want anyone to grow at all because you want everyone to reset to position one for the next episode, right? Right. So funny things happen, but, you know, everyone still loves Raymond. Everyone's still <laughs> friends, you know, everyone goes to bed, cheers, you know, Shit's Creek, right? They're, they still are in desperate straits in a small town. They're never, they're never getting out of that hotel, right? Yeah. So that's, you know, that's the sitcom world. And then the drama world, especially in streaming, which is really exciting, you get to have your cake and eat it too a little bit. So in a streaming, like 12 episodes, right? You could do two episodes that feel like a first act. And then the big question of the season arises. And then you can explore that question for all the middle ones until you hit the big, like, we're, I don't want to say the word, but we're in trouble, I would yeah. say. <laughs> and then now you have this third act where you just barrel through into your uh, finale and your twists and all your action. So I feel like Teen Wolf's a good example of what streaming's really good at and where the story form of television is going mm-hmm. is that like you can each season can stand as its own you know little capsule that has the journey of a feature but that familiarity and that sort of these characters are my friends you know of television yeah so it's a nice it's a nice combo there which is why I'm so excited to see the Teen Wolf movie because I want to see you know I, I can see how easily a, an episode could translate into like the three-act big bonanza that i expect the movie to be it's pretty big (laughs) it's pretty big to say the least so i mean you you know we packed so much story and so much action into 42 minutes now it's like well we've got all the time in the world Uh (laughs) so we'll see how it goes but yeah it's gonna be great it's i saw the you know the trailer and everything and uh, it looks it looks amazing looks amazing it does it does how did the writing process on Teen Wolf compare to Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, or something like DC Superhero Girls? They're totally different. <laughs> I was trying to think how to even say it succinctly. I'm like, I, I will say this, like Grey's Anatomy, Private Practice, and most network shows that have really big, you know, network orders, I would say that you often just have two things that you have to service in a way. So, you know, Grey's, it's like, you know, most medical stuff. And then you have to service like all these different characters and where they start and where they finish and what are going to be their big crisis of the episode emotionally to the private practice, same thing. You've got this medical side and then you have like just all the romance, like who's breaking up, who's making up, who's running off and getting married, who's, you know, so it was like weaving all this stuff and then you do, they call it the cross. So you have to cross it all. So that's where they're going to cross. It's where they're going to cross. So you, you, you map it the whole entire season out. And then each character has their, you know, one character in episode one, two, three, four. And by the time they get to 23, they've quit the practice, you know, whatever the thing is, they're going to come back next season. No, we don't know, but they're so upset. They quit the practice, you know? And then with Teen Wolf, kind of like what we talked about, you start like wide and then you just sharpen that thing right down. It's just like, 
you get those molecules as close together as you can. And then they get, I mean, the editing is just so razor sharp. You just get it, you know, compressed, 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 compressed. So that's, and I think that's part of the reason when there is just a pure character moment, it, it's always like a punctuation of just mm -hmm. what we've seen in our kind of take a breath for a second and get a minute to have emotion. So I would say Teen Wolf is like the entire season is basically done before you can start writing because you have so much you have to plant that's going to pay off. So you can't just like whimsy it and then nothing pays off, right? It's, it's extremely important that everyone's exactly on the same page. Right. And then DC Superhero Girls, I mean, that first of all, that's an animated show. So I would say, you know, for anyone's listening, um, animation has an entirely different process, partly because it takes so long to make anything because that tech, you know, the, the technical side, the artists, the storyboards, all that stuff. So what happens is it tends to just be so collaborative by the finish line, you know, jokes are really, they're in the script, but they get pulled off by the animator. You know, they get pulled off by the storyboard artist because it's not an actor taking that line and then doing a couple of different takes and see what we got in the editing room. You know, it's, there aren't different takes. It's, it's that storyboard artist and that animator and that character designer, they, they know what it looks like when that character gives a look or is curious or, you know, they, they have it all, they know it already. So it's so important that the script barely changes by the time you get to the work of the animator. So, and you do the voiceover first too. So with that, most animated shows, I mean, maybe all of them, I'm not sure. Maybe not like, well, I don't get too sideways. The animated show I was on, like in live action, the story editor is considered like a, a lower level writer before they go up to the producer level. But in animation, the story editor is really in charge of all the scripts. And they usually write quite a few themselves. So they have to keep an eye on everything. And they, they just, they have an incredible knack for organizing like your episode, this episode, that episode, they keep it all in their heads. And um, it's different than being a showrunner. So it's like, it, it is really a different process. And then you go through the process with them and then they pretty much take it. Like once you're through your outline, through your script, they show it to, you know, the bosses because it's, it's more of a freelance based business overall. Some shows have rooms, but not so many. And then they have to do like the final, you know, snippet. Like with DC Superhero Girls, you have to go for the glory and the guts of the jokes. You have to go big because a small joke doesn't play as well on animation. So you have to go like big and physical and funny, but then there's a lot of censorship, like tone this down, you know, kind of stuff. <laughs> there's definitely some funny feedback from mine, but I, I won't go into it, but I was like, oh, they really misunderstood that joke. We better cut it. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. That's not what I meant at all. Um, but that's why you need other eyes on it, right? So right. it has to, it has to, you know, by the time it gets the stamp, especially of a huge franchise, you know, like DC Comics, it's like it has to it has to pass a lot of tests. So all to say, and then you kind of forget about it forever. And then somebody like sends you an email and is like, oh, the new, you know, the new uh, episodes dropped. And you're like, oh, I wonder if mine's in there. Like, oh, it is, it is. So there's, <laughs> it was, you know, with live action, it's like you do it, it's on set, it goes through the grinder, it comes out and then it's on and it goes, goes, goes. But animation, you're almost like surprised because you wait so long for it to right. come out. And then you kind of forgot about it a little bit. And you're like, oh yeah, that, that was good. Did I read that? Did the story editor put that in? That's good. So uh, yeah, that was, that was really, really fun. I would say animation is super fun. And I was so grateful to have a little experience in that. That was really fun. Did you have a favorite character on Teen Wolf? 
Yes, I actually, you know, this was a great excuse to binge um, a little Teen Wolf this week. So, um, and I have to say, like, now I have two kids and Melissa McCall, she's my hero. She's my hero all the way. Uh, she is the I best mom on Teen Wolf. Yes. She is the best. And it's like, she's so supportive, but she's not just some mushy gushy. Like, she mm-hmm. delivers the truth. And I thought when she told Scott to be his own anchor, I was like, oh, like, I... I mean, I feel like I have tears in my eyes. Like how, how long do a lot of us search for the anchor only to find it's within ourselves mm-hmm. and to be told that as a teenager in the wake of a breakup, I was just like, oh my gosh, it's so great. So great. So anyway, I just love her and I love how much she loves all the kids there. Like she's a mom to the whole pack. Yep. And, you know, she puts her ex to task when he's going to like, be like, you know what? I can't get through to him. I think I'm going to leave. And she's like, what? <laughs> you know, like, she, like, holds everyone accountable. And yet she's so loving and, so, and she's just like there. She's solid. So I, I like that. And, you know, as a parent now, I'm like, I really like how the parents are not fighting with their kids all the time. They're mm-hmm. actually like, what do you need? What's going on? You know, what do I have to do? Um, what crazy thing is happening in my town. I would love to have a relationship like that with my kids when they're teens to just, you know, see, know what's going on with them, love them. And, you know, if they have to fight some monsters, I might just have to show up and uh, yeah. bring some snacks. I'm going to show up, bring some snacks and help them out. <laughs> exactly. There you go. I brought you a machete and some orange slices. So oh, here right. we go. <laughs> You're not getting scurvy on my watch. Exactly. So no, that, Melissa, she's such a wonderful character. And that scene, especially when she tells Scott to be your own anchor, I believe it's that same scene, but she also tells him either in that scene or later when she's like, you're going to fall in love again. You know, that I know it doesn't feel like it in this moment, but you're going to be okay. Like you, you will feel this again more times, you know, that that's how this works. And and because she never like sugarcoats it or just kind of placates or she's like, yeah, it sucks. It's going to suck some more too, but it's also going to be really great. So, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful. So she's just the best. Good lover. (laughs) So good. So do you have any advice for aspiring writers? So I had this like nine to, it was really 8.30 to 5.30 job. And I, it was admin, it was not creative in any way. And I would get this lunch hour and I would walk directly across the street to the Starbucks and I would have like 42 minutes, you know, between like the walk and then to pack up the bag and get back about 42 minutes. And every single one of those minutes I wrote every single lunch hour. And in the years after I started at Grey's Anatomy Private Practice, um, I sold every single one of the scripts that I wrote during those lunch hours. And yes. the amount of faith that it took to write those when I had no representation, it's like the, the moxie that I had <laughs> to just pound those out without anyone waiting to read them. You know, it wasn't as though anybody was waiting. I, I don't know where that came from, but I, I do feel like just to keep the faith message that if that helps anyone take it, I didn't realize that's what I had when I was doing that, but now I see that's what I had. Really good advice. Yeah. No one's waiting for you. Like, yeah. you know, it, it's like, you just gotta, you gotta go. Just, do it anyway. Just do it no matter what. Just, you don't stop. So. Yeah. You know, it's like you, I don't even know. I mean, I feel like even being a writer is that duality of these worlds that are talking to you. And then you have to actually navigate the world at large. 
and and uh, those things want to come through you. So you have you have to honor that without knowing what the result will be, and that's that's very anti-capitalistic stuff. But <laughs> you just have to honor what the story is that wants to come through you. Yeah. Do you have any fun stories from the Teen Wolf writers room? You know, I was thinking about that and it's like, I feel like I have the worst memory for funny things. And I was like, <laughs> I know I had fun and I know that every day it was like just a huge storytelling, like a masterclass in storytelling. And like, I remember those aspects and I remember visiting the set and walking around, like someone had bought all these props from another show. Will, do you remember that? Like we went on this walk and someone had, I feel like maybe it was the, it wasn't the line crew, maybe it was a production designer. It- I think it was Joe. I oh, think it, okay, it I think Joe. it was probably Joe because he always had an eye out for stuff. He's like, is there yeah. stuff we can buy on the cheap and then use right. or just put over in this corner and eventually it'll, something yeah, it'll will cool happen with something. it. Yeah. Yeah. And I just remember it was like, there's a well. We need to put somebody in a well. Like I just remember just laughing so hard that it's like, all right, we have all these ideas and now we're going to look at what we have. We got a well, we got our, our sarcophagus, we've got a big fake tree, we've got like... Uh, yeah, yeah, there was like an I Egyptian obelisk. Yes, yes. So it was like, it was yeah. like how to bring, I mean, it just was so funny to me. And just so, you know, again, part of that puzzle of like weaving all these things in. And um, I just remember how, like, let's go for a walk and look at a fake well. I mean, it was just so funny. <laughs> Another thing I would say is it's if you can be, I mean, not like everyone has like all these choices, but being on a show that's close to production or like right next to production, which is what I had on Grey's and on Teen Wolf is awesome because stuff comes up and the writer's room can be right there to solve a problem. And a problem was we needed this picture in a medical file for, um, oh my gosh, Jennifer, what's her name? Julia Bakari, the original, the original character. Yeah. Yeah. So, so before like, the disfiguring accident, you know, and, um, and so they needed someone that looked sort of like her, but wasn't her. And um, I looked good enough. So they took a <laughs> picture and there I am in the, you know, in the Teen Wolf uh, universe. So, so you never know. You never know when you need to be ready for your close-up. I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Yeah. It is great because it, it was so wonderful on Teen Wolf because if there's, if something came up, it's, we were like a hundred feet away from yeah. this set instead of being like all right somebody get on the phone to vancouver and see if if you know we can get someone off set to talk to us about a thing it's like ah, just just go walk over there and knock on the door and we're probably in there playing ping pong or something so uh <laughs> you know is that type of thing or an ad comes in and says we need someone on set and jeff just like points and goes uh eric go go see what that problem is and get back in here yeah that, that's an ideal situation i think Absolutely. Do you prefer writing genre stories or more real life, in quotes, stories? Well, you know, this is an interesting question because um, I kind of, I, I feel like the best genre stuff is, is that it's anchored in the real world. Um, and then there's these like magical elements that then force their way into that world. And I find, that's why I think I like so many, you know, movies that are, you know, ostensibly for kids, but it's like, I think, you know, Willy, and, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory and Alice in Wonderland. And, and that said, I think I've seen Wreck-It Ralph like 5,000 times um, <laughs> because it's like, I know video games, you know, of, of your, you know, actual <laughs> arcade games. And then now we're going to see that world from a completely different perspective. So I think I, again, I just go back to like that place in between. I think that's where the truth actually lies. I think that's why we never stop making the genre stuff because it is true. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's an expression of something in our real life experience that then we can deal with and we can talk about and we can put something on it. We can make it into something. Yeah. Then we know what it feels like, even though it's an interior thing. Yeah. There's this Australian horror movie called The Babadook and it's like this mom. Oh, yeah. We yeah, love right? that movie. That is the scariest movie I've ever seen, <laughs> you know? And it's like, let's talk about that being a mom can be really scary without talking about that. Let's make something that is scary and then get it all mixed up. Um, and it's like that kind of stuff. I never stop thinking about those things. Like when it hits, it really hits. And, yeah. uh, and that's, yeah. So I think that's, I think I like to write things that are truthful. The truth is <laughs> things we can't see are full of truth. Mm-hmm. So let's like interface with them and, and have a cool conversation about that. Yeah. You, you mentioned the proximity of the writer's room to the set. Were you on set at all for Silverfinger? I don't think I was on set for the whole thing, but like good, good chunks of it. I feel like maybe half, maybe a little bit more, which I have to say, Jennifer Lynch is wonderful. She was a fantastic director. I know she went on to helm a lot more episodes there and does uh, do a lot of Walking Dead and stuff. Yeah, it was super, super fun to be on set and, and just to get to know the actors more and, and see the process. And I remember the first time I saw the Oni and how awesome they looked and how carefully they had to move in the scenes. It's such a, it's such an art to have so much character come through when you're completely covered, like your face, your whole body, everything. So everything about you can only be conveyed through your actual body movement. And I was, I was there when they were, you know, having the big showdown in the house and trying to get through the shield. And I mean, that's nothing I ever saw on private practice or Grey's Anatomy. So that was really, really cool to just really just admire all the craftsmanship of all the crew and, um, and just see what care everybody took, like the, like the masks on the Oni and, you know, it, it, the show is, you know, it's in that dark light because of the tone of the show. But sometimes I want to be like, no, turn the lights up so you can see the entire costume. Are you missing? Look at that. Look at the thing on his wrist. Look at the thing on his leg. Like there's so much there, you know, and everything is part of the whole. And I just, I just remember just really enjoying just, just watching it all. I mean, it's just so fun, especially when you have a really awesome director. So you can just relax. You don't have to like, you know, look at the script or you can just relax because you know, everything's taken care of this. This crew is just, they got it. They're down. Yeah, you know, everyone, everyone's not just doing their job; they're doing a very, very good job, and that's really fun set to be on. Absolutely, we had an amazing crew. So there were not any demon ninjas on Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> I don't think so, but wow, they're still on TV, so you never know. <laughs> you never know. Yeah, they I mean... a lot of things. This could be next. Grey's Anatomy <laughs> haunted, haunted Hospital. Uh, <laughs> I would watch I... the hell out of that. Yeah. Interested exactly. McDreamy has to renovate like an old haunted hospital and then weird it. things start happening. And, then yeah. really and he becomes McNightmare. Exactly. There <laughs> it is. <laughs> Which cast or crew member would make the best alpha? Well, I, I, if I'm the first person to say this, I am shocked, but I would say Russell McKay. I mean, Russell should be an alpha. without any doubt at all i mean done like done (laughs) just show up with the contact lenses and take it from there i think he would be fantastic um and and you know funny and 
sly and uh and he'd always have like a surprise always have a surprise because I feel like Russell always knew like 10 steps ahead how things were going to look and how you know any challenge he would meet it with such excitement um that I I feel like he would be a great alpha that's a great answer yeah if you could write for any show currently on air what would it be severance nice we love that show too we love that show <laughs> like i so like good. like i i i can't stop thinking about it it's perfect it's perfect <laughs> it just blew us away yeah like, yeah i was so yeah incredible. just floored by it i thought the trailer looked interesting so we started watching it and i was like this is brilliant yeah. this is amazing best show i've seen in a long time yeah yeah quite yeah quite it's, good. It's, it's so um like again it's it's a perfect marriage of a concept and a human experience mm-hmm. like you have your work life and you have your home life and it's like okay what if that's what you have mm-hmm. two lives what if we literally separate it not just separate it psychologically you know but actually separate it i mean i love those questions like what if and it just goes from there. And I will say, like, I'm I'm not sure I would I would write on it, but mm-hmm. um, but every time I watch Cobra Kai, I'm like, this is kind of like Teen Wolf. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like the the packs, the groups against each other, the, you know, I it's like I see I see things that feel like it's all part of that same exploration. I would say the same thing about Stranger Things too, like mm-hmm. the Nemeton and all that stuff. That, that's very Stranger Things ish you know yeah that that all is within that realm and that's why i think like you know that's why genre will never end because that exploration will never end i don't think human human beings can explore that forever Mm -hmm. ask any therapist out there (laughs) (laughs) yes if you could be any teen wolf creature what would you be i was tempted by a banshee i admit but then I was like, you know what I think is really cool is the ghostwriters, because when they kill someone, they take away all the memories of that person to everyone else. And I thought that's a that's that's a real death mm-hmm. because you're not someone's not just not living. They're not even living on in others. The, the love that they gave, the experiences they gave, the conversations they had, the, the food they cooked, all that stuff it's gone with them. Mm -hmm. And I also went to a lot of horseback riding camp growing up. So I was like, yeah, put me on a horse. I'll, I'll ride around and play with that. Um, I thought that was, you know, and I just love the way they looked. I love the way they appeared on the horizon, all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, they could, you know, they probably use a cowgirl in there. There you go. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah. I don't think anyone's picked uh, Ghost. Yeah, I think yet. you're the yeah, first. I don't think so. Uh, Moira, do you have any upcoming projects you can tell us about? Well, you know, I'm one of those like the whole loose lips, sink uh, ships, sink ships person. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I get nervous if people like talk about stuff that's not like coming out tomorrow. I don't know why I get nervous for them. I got you. Chat about I don't know. Um, I feel like all writers we have this like anxiety for ourselves and all others on the pursuit of writing. Um, but yeah, I had some, I had some nice news right before the pandemic hit. And what's been weird is that I feel like since the pandemic, if we're in it or out of it, I don't know, whatever, but it's like all the timelines have warped. Mm-hmm. So it's like, 
well, we don't have to stick to that timeline now because we kind of stopped the clock and then we kind of in the deal and stuff. And I'm like, okay, hey, if it's still alive, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, just tell me it's still alive and I'll, I'm excited. Yeah. So I don't know. I will say this, like, it's, it's been a complete surprise to me, the stuff that has sold or been optioned and the stuff that hasn't. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that is, but for anyone who's, who's out there, like you just never know. And I think that's the good news and the bad news. So yeah, there's a few things in the pipe and we'll just see. There's, there's a lot of yeses between the first, like, Hey, we're kind of interested to like, all right, let's shoot this thing. There's like, there's like 100 million <laughs> yeses and they all have to, they have to pretty much keep being yeses. Yeah. The finish line. Like once you start, once you start with the first yes, that's basically your yes path. So you're hoping like all the yeses keep coming until, you know, you can go see it or stream it or whatever. Yep. Um, so I would, I would say that. And I, I have to say like, I never would have guessed all the excitement about relaunching things that we have now. Mm-hmm. I just, I couldn't have been, ima- I couldn't have imagined it. So I think it's, again, like we're serving the people that love these stories in a way that, you know, we haven't before. That's why there's like a gajillion Star Wars TV shows and Marvel universes and DC superhero girls. And it's cool. Like, it's cool. I'm glad that characters live on. It it makes you feel good. I'm sure the actors are like, like unbelievable. Like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go play this character again. This is amazing. Yeah, it's quite wonderful. Quite wonderful. And we're all very excited. Yes. Yes. Well, Maura, this has been an absolute pleasure to yes, see you again and to Yay. sit down and have this wonderful stroll down memory lane uh, for, for our show that we all love so much. Right. This has been great. It's It was really, like I said, I, I mean, I read a, a while back that, that everything was sort of getting new energy and, mm-hmm. and movie and stuff. So it was really fun to, to just fun to watch it all again. And, and oh, yeah. remember why I love the show, even before I wrote on the show. And then of course, then you're like in it and you're like, wow, it's, it's so cool. <laughs> so it was really, that was, it was very joyful to, to be like, oh yeah, look at, look, there's all my, there's all my friends on TV running around and doing interesting, cool things and being awesome with their fangs and I love their <laughs> Absolutely. Cool stuff happening. <laughs> so the pistol from 1645 is a great lead-in to the Maid of Chevalton. Will, did y'all already have the plan for that? We did not. That is just happy coincidence, unfortunately. I don't remember when the idea of the Maid of Jevedon, which is a real thing, became like a real notion in the writer's room. I think we'd all known about it up, you know, up through because we'd done so much reading about werewolf mythology and all that. And of course, that whole incident in France comes up often because it's kind of like, the main documented in quotes incident with a monster also in quotes potentially werewolf in real history so um it was always there in the background but i don't think we had any real intention of of making that some kind of lead into something later on and the bet de Gévaudan is mentioned in season one when Allison starts doing research on her family history so yeah we have that in season one and then we have this in 3b where there are the brothers in the 17th century and one of them gets turned into a werewolf so it just seems like there are these great breadcrumbs Mm -hmm. leading up to the wonderful period piece episode taking place in france in the 17th century definite subconscious writer stuff happening here not realizing that we're laying seeds for something because i mean you know the dread doctors weren't even a notion yet 
And if they were a notion, they were plague doctors because that's what they were originally. But I mean, the whole idea that, you know, that the lead dread doctor was the best friend of the beast of Jevedon and all like, yeah, none of that, like none of that was even a thing yet. So these are just bits of subconscious writer that look good in hindsight, but are not really (laughs) a thing, unfortunately. Because it was established that the maid of Jibadon was mm-hmm. an Argent. Yep. That mm-hmm. was established yep. in season one. So that's why I thought, even though I know that normally whole episode plots and even season plots aren't necessarily decided years in advance, that maybe there was a notion that we were going to, at some point, explore more about the Argent's history yeah. in uh, in 17th century France. But yeah, I, I guess that's just, again, unconscious writer stuff. Right. I do remember like when when season five came around and, and we knew that we were doing once we kind of figured out who the Dread Doctors were and what they and by they, I mean, like the lead Dread Doctor was really up to, then it was like, well, it's the Beast of Jevon. Like, I mean, it was like, what's one big werewolf that we can do? And it's like, well, we've already mentioned it. it's already there. We might as well go all the way with the Argents. That's that's one of those great things where it's like you're breaking a story and you realize you've already figured it out. Set the some thing. groundwork too. Yeah, exactly. I like how in this episode the Oni use their swords to cut a hole in the mountain ash field, and then we revisit that idea later with the Ghost Riders and uh, their whips when they were trying to get a hold of Alicia Bow's character Gwen in season six. And then the moment where Scott and Kira hold hands and stop resisting the Oni, we kind of mirror this in the snow garden at the end of this season, a moment where uh, you just kind of have to let go and let it all happen. I feel like you guys always knew how to do callbacks really, really well. Well, again, like what Kate was just saying, it's the subconscious writer, it, you know, and, th- and this happened every season. Like we would get to the end and we're like, how, how do we how do we fix the problems for characters that we solved? And then we realize we've actually laid track without realizing it. Jeff's very good at that. Jeff is very good at looking at what already exists and figuring out how to make it work in the story being told. He's, he's quite good at it. Cause I'll be honest. There were plenty of times when he says, we'll figure that out later. And we do, you know, but I'll tell you again, if I'm being honest, uh, it was nail biting. (laughs) <laughs> at a time because i'm very much a i need to know where i'm going writer because i like a planner i i'm a planner i'm a, i'm not a pantser you know i'm a planter not a pantser and those are those are novel writing terms uh that mainly thrown around with george R. R. Martin, where he's a he's a planter and he doesn't just figure it out on the fly he takes a long time or a long time to write his books oh God, don't need to get into that South park about that and it was hilarious Nice. So yeah, I like to know where I'm going so I can then lay in seats, you know, and and figure that out. But Jeff's like, ah, we'll, we'll figure it out. And I'm like, okay, boss. <laughs> I, I relate hard to Jeff. I can't get into the extensive planning that you do. It's just the way I work. That's all from Jeff because before before I worked on Teen Wolf, like all the scripts I wrote before Teen Wolf, which were bad. I am a better writer because of Teen Wolf. But I was just like, I have an idea. Fade in colon uh exterior day exterior someplace day and i just went you know like i had like a general gist and i just wrote they were all very bad scripts but then once i worked on teen wolf i figured out how to do writer stuff and uh (laughs) yeah so thanks jeff it's interesting that you talk about 
watching that scene with Scott and Kira holding hands and just accepting mm-hmm. what's coming and that reminding you of the snow garden because I was thinking about Toy Story 3. Oh no! I was. I was sitting oh. there watching it and I was like, major Toy Story 3 vibes. That's a rough scene. Just hold hands and let it happen because there's nothing else you can do. Yeah. Oh, what man. a magnificent movie. Very good movie. Pixar, they they know how to tell stories. Like they are so good at telling stories. But I had not thought about that scene in many years because I saw that film once. I was like, that's enough. I've been hurt enough <laughs> been times hurt. by this movie. I'm good. Kind of like with Up. Seen it twice. I got it. I got it. Thank you. First 15 minutes without any dialogue. But you destroyed me. So good job. I actually, you know, you're talking about not being like, nail biting waiting for like a script and like things to be finished i actually just read like a thing saying that for the most recent season of like euphoria there were like weekends when zendaya would just have to like show up at sam levinson's house to try to encourage him to finish scripts because a lot of times he was just turning stuff on like a day of shooting Jeez. i mean we did that a couple of times but not because we waited i mean we were breaking the story up until it had to go he so. writes all the episodes himself, I believe. I so. can't even imagine doing that. I yeah. would lose my like, mind. You know, if you're experiencing like writer's block and you're the only one writing, like there's no way. Like Joe, our exec producer, he hasn't put up with that shit. He's like, we're shooting. You got to write something. I'll write something if I have to. Something has to be on a page that we can then shoot because we are spending millions of dollars, <laughs> you know. And so, but I mean. Just a fantastic writer. And there were plenty of times during this season, like when Ian Stokes was on, where like all the writers, like we'd be done like at 9 p.m. or something. Like it'd been a super long day. And then the last thing, like back when I'm the assistant, so I'd have to tidy up everything, make sure everything's ready for the next day. And as I'm leaving, I'm saying my goodbyes. Jeff and and Ian were side by side at his computer and his office just clacking away on scenes for the next day. Writing TV is very hard, Wolfies. It is It is rough. It is often likened to a train that you are laying track right in front of. <laughs> and that is not an exaggeration because the train can't stop. And if you stop, it derails and millions of dollars are wasted. So it's just one of those things where got to shoot something. All right, well, here's a post-it note with some words. Especially, oh. <laughs> this is especially the case if you have really short turnaround times. Very short. Some shows, and I feel like this is particularly true in the streaming age, yeah. actually get quite a bit of time before they have to start airing the next season. So there actually is time to examine the track that you're laying before the train is right on top of you. Yeah, it depends. Like for us, for like Teen Wolf, we had about two and a half months, maybe three, if we were lucky. Oftentimes, like like how Jeff mentioned, I think in his first interview with us, where they uh on our last day in the writer's room they're like mtv showed up and was like hey you want to do more and we're like yeah how about next year and they're like how about tomorrow and it's like well i guess we're writing next season tomorrow and you know and and stuff like that but i mean like if you're lucky you get a good amount of time but more often than not you're not yeah it's just rough but it's also the greatest job in the world i miss it very much that concludes this week's episode of return to beacon hills we hope you had as much fun listening as we did talking about all things Teen Wolf. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RTBH Podcast and Tumblr and TikTok at Return to Beacon Hills. 
If you'd like to ask us questions or offer suggestions for future topics to discuss, you can email us at returntobeaconhills at gmail.com. Join us here next week when we discuss Season 3, Episode 18, Riddled. Rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast goodness. Five-star reviews get a shout-out. Have a great week, and we'll see you again soon on Return to Beacon Hills. Dude, it's Beacon Hills.